um, it's a little bit echoey in here. Um, if you are having trouble on the audio, please let me know in the comments because I will see that uh, in the chat. Or actually, I think I in a second. Just need to open it up in a separate window here. And localities of managing. Okay. There we go. And I need to mute it. There we go. So, hey, I wear a hoodie in New Orleans. Good to see you, man. All right, tonight we are doing a presentation that I just called What is Bitcoin? And um, it's a bit of a deep dive into uh, the function of the network and what Bitcoin is um, in terms of the white paper, um, and so yeah, I hope you all learn something from it, and uh, I'm going to go through the presentation because it is reasonably long, um, and then we can have some Q&A at the end, so, um, and we'll take questions from the live audience that we have here, which is currently just Joe, and uh, from anybody who is watching through the internet, so um, yeah. Firstly, um, my name's Brendan Lee. Uh, obviously, if you're watching, you probably, you probably know a little bit about who I am. Um, I've been in Bitcoin for almost two years now. Um, it is now my career, um, and I love it. I think it's just the greatest technology um, since the wheel, basically. And uh, yeah, lots of exciting things happening. I'm a bit of an evangelist. I've um, been involved in tokenized services, a few other cool projects. So, um, anyway, let's get into it. So, what is Bitcoin? The title of the white paper Peer to Peer Electronic Cash. Um, and so, this is the primary reference material for the protocol. Um, the Bitcoin white paper, written by Satoshi Nakamoto and released uh, back in 2008. Um, with the network going live in 2000, or very early in 2009. Um, so to just go through the white paper, um, the abstract of the white paper, line by line. Um, so the first uh, sentence, a purely peer-to-peer version of electronic cash would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution. So. We need to be clear here, this does not mean that financial institutions will cease to exist, um, but their relationship with their customers will change. So, um, what peer-to-peer -peer means in this context is that when I create a transaction, I create the entire transaction myself using my wallet, and I determine to whom I'm going to send that money, and then I send that transaction onto the network, and my only role in processing that transaction is creating a record of it on the ledger. So when I send money, I am literally sending it from me to you. So that is the peer-to-peer -peer aspect of, of how Bitcoin works as money. Um, it has a lot of other features. You can do very cool things within transactions, um, just scratching the surface. You know, we have multi-signature account capabilities. Uh, we, we can also put uh, time locks. Onto money so that you can you can send money onto the networks in, in such a way that it can't be spent 
until a certain time uh, or date. Um, and there is a very rich uh, scripting language which is based on, on a, an older language called Forth, um, which you can use to, to do very diverse things with Bitcoin. And basically, it's been shown now that um, the language and uh, the use of Bitcoin as uh, like a memory ticker provides a true complete environment uh, for you to uh, build applications within that language. And so what we're going to see is that the speed, the low cost, and the ease of use of Bitcoin is going to make entirely new classes of financial services and, and others, all kinds of different services to be enabled and to be deployed and then to be used by you know, billions of people all over the world. And we're starting to see that already. Um, we can get into some of that a bit later. So the next line of the white paper abstract um, digital signatures provide part of the solution, but the main benefits are lost if trusted third parties required to prevent double spending. We propose a solution to the double spending problem by using a VP network. So the Bitcoin network is comprised of numerous layers, and each layer is populated by different parts of different users of the network. Um, each use separate classes of infrastructure, and each wrap with the network and the blockchain in different ways. So at the base you have the core mining layer. So that is mining nodes who are collecting transactions, mining blocks, uh, serving that data back up to uh, other peers on the network. Um, you then have the e-commerce and blockchain services layer. So that can be you know things like explorers um, or, or large commerce environments processing. You know, many thousands or millions of transactions themselves. Um, custodial layer, where you might have uh, financial institutions who are holding money for customers in time block and multi signature transaction types, as we discussed before. And then the user layer, which is, which is really us using the network with our wallets and with all of the applications that we interact uh, on the network with. And, uh, so really what's important to understand is that all of the users of the network are considered peers. So, and that any peer can talk to or not talk to any other peer on the network, regardless of what they are at. So I can talk to a miner, and a miner can talk back to me. As a user, I can talk to the custodial layer. Custodial layer can talk to miners. Um, you know, there really is that freedom of connectivity uh, within that infrastructure. So, now, the network timestamps transactions by hashing them into an ongoing chain of hash-based proof-of-work, forming a record that cannot be changed without redoing the proof-of-work. The longest chain not only serves as proof of the sequence of events witnessed, but proof that came from the largest pool of CPU power. So, what that means is that Blocks are hashed into a, a Merkle tree structure um, that provides a, a secure evidence. I'm just getting some feedback from the mic, so I'm trying to hold it down well enough. I hope that sound is coming through. Um, let me just check the comments. Yes. Okay. Sorry, guys. Just getting back into it. Back. So, um, what that means is, um, so the miners, so 
Blockchain has, using American tree, provides clear evidence of transactions in the block value. So basically, a miner takes each transaction that is sent onto the network, uh, validates that the key spent in the money owns the money, um, and that the transaction they are using to spend that money is valid. They then take all of those transactions in aggregate and uh, produce what's called a block template. So a block template is hashes of all of these transactions uh, joined together in in the order basically in which they're received from the network. Um, and miners are free uh, to order these transactions in, in any way they like, um, but most will just order them in the way that they see them. And the clients today are written such that as transactions come in, they're just dependent to the block. And um, so what miners do um, is create a template uh, and then try to solve a mathematical puzzle uh, that will award them the block. So when a miner finds a block, they get to award themselves uh, both a block reward and some coins uh, and, and any fees that are attached to transactions. And we'll get into that a little bit later on. Um, so when there are disagreements about which block was first, uh, what happens is there is a basically uh, almost a fight between hash counts. So if two miners find different blocks almost simultaneously, um, and one miner gets this block to 30% of the rest of the network, and the other miner gets this block to 70% of the rest of the network, then the miner who reached 70% of the network first has a 70% chance of being allowed to keep their money. So what that means is that 70% of the network is agreeing that that miner's version of history is correct, and that they can mine on top of it. Um, whereas for the other guy, only 30% of the miners agree, and so there's actually a much bigger chance that he will lose that money. Now, this is part of the economic incentive that uh, is created in Bitcoin to build a strong and fast and robust network. Um, so, when miners do that proof of work, um, they are basically taking those transactions, wrapping them into a mathematical block. This block is very easy to check. So when a block is found, um, basically a small amount of data, much smaller than the actual block of transactions itself, is sent around to all the other miners that says, I found a block, these are the transactions that are in it, this is the order that they're in, um, and this is the work that I did to find that block. And other miners can check that work very quickly and very simply. Um, but it's very it's currently impossible to fake that work. Um, so there's no means for someone to generate a, a valid proof of work uh, without actually doing the work. So it, it means that miners are basically incentivized to be honest. If you create a, a malicious block that has invalid transactions in it, um, you still have to do the work to create a valid block. So over time, the lock becomes harder to create as the network adjusts the difficulty. So what happens is, as more hash power piles into the network to fight for those rewards, um, the network adjusts the difficulty of that problem to maintain the discovery rate of 10 minutes per block. Um, and that is um, really one of the core elements of, of the stability of Bitcoin. And it provides for a real mechanism to um, strengthen the network over time without changing the way it operates.
rates. And so that ever-increasing difficulty is something that we can rely on. We can, we can look at that as a strong measure of the security uh, of the network at any time. Um, so, yeah, and when there is, what we say is that there's really no contention over a block's place in the chain um, after about six more blocks have been found. And so we generally say once six blocks have been found, that block and all the transactions that are in it can be considered immutable. Um, and so that's you know, one thing about Bitcoin is that it is an immutable chain of transactions. So um, the next one, as long as the majority of CPU power is controlled by nodes that are not cooperating to attack the network, they will generate the longest chain and outpace attackers. So miners use a set of consensus rules to determine if a block is valid or not. So they agree on these rules using hash power. So if miners want to accept a certain set of rules, they will begin mining blocks that conform to those rules. So miners have free choice whether or not to accept a transaction or a block. So basically, um, the, uh, the network itself is, is determined uh, freely by the largest pool of CPU power. So um, this leads to a distributed network based on secure facilities which has a high demand for energy and infrastructure. So what you end up with is miners will follow the honest chain. They're incentivized to remain honest. Um, you know, it's very difficult for miners to create um, malicious blocks, malicious transactions, anything like that, and they're not going to make any money by doing so. And miners are really in this to make money. So, um, you know, these facilities that they build, they use a lot of energy, um, they have extremely high connectivity, very fast networks, uh, and these require um, operation, so they have to be maintained, uh, they need to be planned, and they need to be protected. And this is all part of the work that miners do to, to build the Bitcoin network. So, um, the network itself requires minimal structure. Messages are broadcast on a best effort basis, and nodes can leave and rejoin the network at will, accepting the longest proof of work chain as proof of what happened while they were gone. So, what that says, miners can join or leave the network at any time. So, um, you know, if, if a facility goes offline, um, what that essentially means is that the hash power that is attributed to that facility also goes offline. So until it comes back online, um, you know, you may have a period where it takes slightly longer on average for the network to find a block. But, you know, the network itself is resilient to that kind of thing happening. So every node broadcasts all of the transactions that it sees to the rest of the network, and we'll, we'll provide them blockchain data on request. So when a node comes back onto the network, they just go to the other nodes that are out there and say, what's the latest block that you're mining on? Okay, I need the 10 previous blocks and all of the transactions that are in them, um, and they send themselves back uh, to whatever the network is, is, is up to and, and start working. Um, so the blockchain is its own record of what happened. Um, that's the only piece of information that they need is those blocks. And so as long as they can synchronize by downloading whatever they've missed, they can begin mining in straight away. Um, miners are not altruistic. 
They're not doing this, they're not spending their own money. They're, well, they are spending their own money, but they're not doing it out of any kind of goodwill. They are doing it to make more money. That's the whole name of this game. Um, you know, this, the incentives that Satoshi design play on their greed uh, to keep them honest. So, um, going back to the title of the white paper, so that's gone through the abstract. Um, now we're going to get into a little bit more about stuff. How Bitcoin is cash and, and uh, how those uh, incentives work. So, how is it cash? So, cash is defined as money in coins or notes as distinct from checks, money orders, or credit. So, every Bitcoin transaction is created by taking signed notes that define the value of the coin they represent and paying them to one or many new coins. So when you build a transaction in Bitcoin, you take one or more than one coins that are in your wallet that you have the keys to control and sign them into a transaction and spend them out to new coins. So as coins are spent, they are consumed and cease to exist. So as soon as you spend those coins, they're destroyed. The network basically considers those coins gone. Um, and only unspent coins remain in circulation. So the coins uh, are stored in what are called unspent transaction outputs. So they go into the output transaction and they become uh, a UTXO. Um, and basically all miners have a copy of the UTXO pool. Um, and when you spend um, your money, uh, they basically take your transaction, look at what coins you're trying to spend, check in the UTXO pool, Pull them out, um, you know, and, and assuming they're valid, they will check your signature uh, using the elliptic curve mathematics, and that's something I've been trying to learn uh, about, and it's, um, it's it's very simple at the same time as being extremely difficult. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's 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 quite an interesting way of doing things. So it's important to acknowledge that electronic cash. Uh, was chosen very carefully because it is not just digital. Um, now, Bitcoin is a, a technological system um, and it's really going to redefine a lot of things that we use today, um, such as computing storage, user interfaces, um, energy, networks, and finance. And Bitcoin is kind of a nexus of all of these things and um, in the long term, you're going to see significant change in all of these systems as a result of Bitcoin. Uh, and that's probably one of the things that I find most fascinating about is the potential it has to, to change all these aspects of, of how we do things. And not just the planet, you know, with communication. Um, so, what is the challenge? So we want to scale Bitcoin, right? We want to make this global money. So we've got a plan for, you know, within the next 20 years, it's not inconceivable that there'll be 10 billion humans on the planet. And if we want them all using Bitcoin, um, it's not inconceivable that they might do 100 transactions a day each. Um, you know, and when I say transaction, that can mean a text message, a Facebook post, a tweet. Um, I, I know myself, I do well more than 100 of those things in aggregate every day. Um, 
and maybe I'm a little bit more connected than most people, but I would also expect that in the next 20 years, humanity itself will become much more connected. So I think really that one trillion transactions today is, is very much a lower bound on what we need to be able to achieve. But using that as our metric, um, that means that we're going to be mining multi-terabyte blocks every 10 minutes. So if every one of those one trillion transactions was a, a normal cash transaction, um, so about 255 transaction, that would be the equivalent of about terabyte blocks. However, what we're going to start seeing is the average size of each transaction is going to grow. And we're already seeing on the Bitcoin SD network with things like uh, Bitstagram and Tokenize and you know, all of this stuff that's, that's being released where you can embed um, you know, pictures and files and rich receiving and electronic data interchange information into transactions, that's actually going to push the average size of the transaction up. So not only are we going to have these one trillion transactions a day, but those trillion transactions can be much bigger than what we consider the average cash transaction today. And that doesn't mean there won't be cash transactions, there will always be cash transactions, but um, they will actually be, I think, potentially the minority of the transactions happening on the network. So, um, and what do you need for that? Now, that's not many feet to route a terabyte of data every 10 minutes to a global distributed network of mining nodes. So you need very robust hardware. Um, we need advances in computing and storage. You know, we really need to be able to process uh, that amount of data every 10 minutes and build the block templates and, and hash um, all that together and, and you know, build those blocks. Um, we also need new research into energy and efficiency to make all of this happen in such a way that um, we don't cook ourselves. Um, and I know that's one thing that a lot of people are scared about with regards to these cryptocurrencies and proof of work is the amount of energy that they use um, and things like that. But uh, I think uh, we can assuage most of those fears. So who's going to pay for all of this? So I just wanted to, this is a, this is a bit of a, an analysis that I did. It's pretty simple. Um, but if the network gets to one terabyte blocks and miners are receiving, 10 bitcoins per block in fees. So basically, the aggregate amount of fees from one terabyte of, of transactions is 10 bitcoins. So that is an average price of one satoshi per 1,000 bytes. So that's about 1,000 of today's rate we measure in bitcoin. Or one satoshi per every four cash transactions. So what I actually is going to happen is cash transactions will basically be free. And so if you want to do a transaction and have a record of that in, in the form of a receipt, um, then you will pay you know, one solution or whatever it is for that. So, but if one transaction is still valued at one tenth of a cent, and when I say value, that's, that's the value that we attribute to the ability to form an exchange peer to peer. We say that that's worth a tenth of a cent, and you know, that's it. Does actually cost a bit less than that today due to the suppressed price of, of Bitcoin. Um, I don't think it's unreasonable uh, at 10 percent. We could, we can go lower, but for this example, we're going to say 10 percent. So that means one satoshi is worth four tenths of a cent. Which oh, and I'm still got BCH there. Just um, imagine that says BSV. Um, that would put the price of BSV at four hundred thousand dollars. Now. If we 
take that to the next step. Uh, now, I'm not saying BSV income gets $400,000 or financial advice, I'm just using this as an example. But if we said that, with a 10 BSV fee collection every 10 minutes by miners, um, mining becomes a $350 billion industry. Now, it doesn't take a genius to see that that's going to make Bitcoin mining one of the biggest industries in the world. And with that is going to come decentralization. And you know, this is one of the big bugbears of the community is that Bitcoin is going to be centralized, it's going to be um, taken over by one or two miners. No, 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 no. At $350 billion, corporations are being formed weekly and falling over themselves to find a slight advantage over all the other corporations who are mining Bitcoin. This is going to become um, a global industry. It's going to change a lot of things. Um, so, I mean, who are these miners? Um, and what is it that they're going to do for us? So, adoption and use correlates very strongly to price. So, as I just showed with that, that little demonstration, um, with a global cash network that's been used daily by billions of people, um, and at the, with a low transactional cost, um, we still get a very high price of Bitcoin. So they're going to, in order to increase that reward, they're going to invest very heavily into the network to ensure that uh, it doesn't matter how many people use it at, at any given moment, that everybody Everybody's transactions can get through, that everybody can use the network, that it's going to operate smoothly, it's going to work every single time. Um, miners are also going to incentivize users to adopt the network that they are mining. We're already starting to see that happen. So um, we have um, uh, wallets like Handcash and Sandy that are really changing the way um, we see crypto, how crypto should work. And, Implementing features like, like handles um, and making it super easy to send and receive Bitcoin, um, but only on the Bitcoin SV network. Now, make no mistake, these are miner funded projects. Both of those companies get their money from miners. So um, that is miners incentivizing users to use the Bitcoin SV network by bringing tools that make it the easiest Bitcoin to use. Or the easiest network to use, I should say. Um, now, networks that fork the proof of work to get rid of miners, and we see this happening quite often. Um, we saw it last year with um, uh, Monero, uh, with uh, oh, there's, there were a couple of other ones I think it's been discussed um, in, inside Ethereum. They severely weaken the value of their currency because it completely invalidates all the work. Um, that the miners do, and the miners are the people who build the network. And if you chase them away by changing your hashing algorithm so that all the money they spent building ASIC miners and building their network is invalidated, um, they're going to leave. And, and that's basically what's happened. And when you lose those infrastructure providers, you will never be able to achieve scale. So it's important that miners be incentivized not just to stay on the network and mine, to build it and, and to always be improving that infrastructure. So, now I've mentioned a few times what uh, a mining reward. So, I just want to go into a little bit what is that mining reward. 
So currently, the network is, is largely funded uh, by the minting of 12 and a half new Bitcoins uh, every block. So every 10 minutes, when a block is found, the miner who found that block gets to award themselves 12 and a half new coins plus whatever fees um, were in that block. And today, the fees are pretty, you know, infinitesimal. There's you know, well less than one Bitcoin fees in, in each block. Now, but every four years, that block reward goes down by half. So in the first four years of Bitcoin, that block reward was actually 50 Bitcoins. Uh, they went down to 25. It's currently 12 and a half. Um, and every four years, it's going to continue dropping by half until in about 2140, um, it actually goes to zero. And after 2140, uh, there will be no new Bitcoins ever created on the network. So it will be just the supply that is generated, um, and that is, is just slightly less than 21 million Bitcoins. So the next halvening, so we use the term halvening to describe the moment at which uh, the network uh, reward drops by half. So the next halving is, is early next year, um, and at that moment, Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin reward per block will drop six and a quarter Bitcoins. Four years after that, it drops to three and eight, and so on and so forth, um, all the way up to 2140. So, as you, know, as you can see, it's very important that Bitcoin transaction fees must replace that block reward. Um, and so the only way to do that and, and provide uh, a network service that that billions of people are going to want to use is to open the gates, scale it really huge, make transactions cheap, fast, and easy, um, or basically the network will fail. If we don't get enough people using Bitcoin and sending transactions onto the network, and this is, when I say people, I don't just mean individuals, I mean companies, governments, you know, everybody. Bitcoin is for everybody. Um, but we need to get them using it. Uh, in the next five years. So, I wanted to get a little bit more into, into what is mining. Um, and we did discuss that a little bit earlier. Um, so, miners that compete to decipher a mathematical puzzle. This is called hashing. Um, and winning miner wins the block reward at any fees. All miners check their work is correct before mining the top of their block. And the competition between miners is to have the first seen block. So, like we were saying before, if um, two miners find blocks simultaneously or close to simultaneously, the goal is to have that block seen by the largest part of the network possible. So, what that incentivizes is the formation of what is called a small world network. So, a small world network is a network infrastructure where every miner is directly connected or very closely connected to every other one. So ideally there will be less, uh, I think currently on the network it's about one and a half hops from yourself to 99% of the hash power on the network. Um, ideally we want to get that down to sort of less than 1.3 hops. So basically from your wallet to 99% of the hash power is like one, two hops done. Um, so, Bitcoin is a small network, miners invest in robust infrastructure. All miners try to connect directly to each other um, as much as possible. And um, actually, just going back to that very slide, an interesting aspect of that is um, there's a law called Metcalfe's law, uh, which is 
of the law of connections on a network. And it states that um, in a network where everybody's connected to everybody else, it doesn't say that. From that block, Metcalf's law, you can assert that as more people come into the network, the number of connections goes up exponentially. So what that actually means in terms of mining is it does set an upper limit on the number of nodes that you can have inside that small world network. Because only miners who can afford to build that infrastructure that connects them to the rest of the network uh, will have the ability to actually create facilities and, and, and build the nodes uh, that they need to. So that's, that's just one interesting thing that sort of comes out of that. Can I ask? Sorry? Can I ask something? Sure. Yeah, when did the Bitcoins actually, profit, like, after the miner has distributed? So when, when a miner builds a block template, basically they take all the transactions that they've seen up until that point, and they hash them together into a Merkle tree, and they build a block header. And um, well, actually, the first thing they do is they, they create what's called a Coinbase transaction. And Coinbase transaction is the last transaction before the block header. And inside that Coinbase transaction is where they create the new Bitcoins and also award themselves any fees. So they basically do a triple entry accounting across every transaction in the block. And so when you, uh, when you create a transaction, so say I have a coin that's um, 10,000 Satoshis, and I want to send you 5,000 Satoshis, I create a transaction that uh, takes my 10,000 Satoshi coin, sends 5,000 Satoshis to you, and sends 4,500 Satoshis back to myself, and then just leaves the other 500 Satoshis on the table. And so basically every transaction uh, has that small amount of Satoshis just left on the table. And what the miners do is when they create a coin-based transaction, they scrape all those amounts back together and award them to themselves. And so one of the responsibilities of the other miners when they validate that block is to make sure that that miner has done that addition correctly and that they're not awarding themselves more bitcoins than were able to be collected in that block. Now, if a miner does that incorrectly and awards themselves less bitcoins um, or awards themselves less of a block reward, other miners will still consider that valid, and those bitcoins will become lost. And, and there are actually instances where bitcoins have been lost by miners incorrectly adding up um, the fees. Yeah. So, like you said before, if two miners buy a block at the same time, yeah. they both make those coin base No. So if two miners find a block simultaneously, those two blocks are different. And they both build on top of the same child block, or parent block, I should say. And so what needs to happen is that the network as a whole must agree on a single version of history. So it's up to those two miners to propagate their blocks to as much of the network as possible to have them hashing on top of their block. Because other miners will always hash on top of the block that they see first. So they so they create that before they start hashing. So they build, they hash all the transactions together, then they create the coin-based transaction, then they create the block header. And so in the block header, they have a reference back to the block that they're building on top of. Then they have um, what's called a, uh, a block header, which is basically the, the result of the Merkle tree hashing and hashing the coin-based transaction. 
And then they, they try to solve, or actually, sorry, they have a, what's called a, a nonce. And so what they do is they select a new value for the nonce and, and resolve the puzzle. And if the nonce doesn't give them the right difficulty, they select the new nonce and then resolve the, uh, the, the puzzle um, to try to find that, the blockhead. And what they have to do is find a blockhead that's less than a certain amount. And so basically what they do is just billions of times a second, they replace that nonce with a new value and recalculate. And that's all of those hashing, those shoebox miners that you see, that's the only thing that they do. And so they don't even see the whole block. Literally all that they get sent to them is the block header, which is about five or six different pieces of information, and room for the nonce. And they just cycle through the nonce as quickly as they can. And as soon as they find the, the, the result that has the correct difficulty, they send that back to the node that gave them the work. So the node builds the template, then sends the template out to all the assets. Assets process the data. As soon as one finds a result, it sends it back to the node. The node checks it. If it's correct, it sends it back out to the network. And so the goal is to be the fastest at doing that. And when you find a block, you know, it's no good if you find it and it takes a minute for you to send it out to everybody. You've got to get it out there in, in milliseconds. Because well, somebody else Everybody else is also trying to do exactly the same thing that you're trying to do. And if someone else finds a block even a couple of seconds after you do, but they're faster than you at getting that information out to everybody else, they'll win the race to have most of the network mining on top of their solution, on top of their version of history. So history is decided by the strongest miners in aggregate. Does that answer your question? <laughs> We can talk more about it later. Um, so, yeah, calculating these hashes uses a lot of energy. Um, and so the difficulty changes every um, to maintain the 10 minute block time. Currently, in Bitcoin density, it changes with every single block. So every time a block is down, the difficulty is changed. Um, that's a bit of a hangover from when it was um, Bitcoin Cash and they did that to um, at one point. Um, the block difficulty ended up being very low, and so basically all of the hash power came across the Bitcoin Cash network because it's very, very easy to find blocks and very, very easy to make a lot of money very quickly. Um, and so they created what they called the emergency difficulty adjustment algorithm, um, which basically change, changes that difficulty every single block. Um, in Bitcoin, uh, BTC, the block difficulty changes every 2016 blocks, so it's roughly three blocks. Exactly every two weeks, basically. Um, and the plan with Bitcoin SV is eventually to go back to that same algorithm. So, but, um, so the application of the energy to block making is what secures the chain. So the more energy spent hashing to, to create that solution that solves that difficult problem at higher difficulty makes it more difficult to attack the blockchain. So, um, in order to, you know, because you can't prove proof of work, uh, can't, sorry, um, fake proof of work, um, you're really incentivized just to be honest. And rather than trying to create these malicious infinity blocks and things that people always postulate is possible, you know, to, to do that, um, you have to spend the money to do the work. And currently that's about $30,000 a block um, if you're doing it on Bitcoin, so, or if you're doing it on BTC. So, 
Um, you know, it's, it's easy to see that terabyte blocks, a $350 billion industry, um, will be one of the most energy intensive industries in the world. Um, and so new energy sources are not just going to be desired, they're going to be required. And it's going to be the miners who, who gain access to the cheapest energy and the cheapest and most reliable energy who are going to win the most blocks and be the most successful miners. So what we're actually going to see is that miners are going to start competing to, um, to, to find and develop um, new sources of energy. And, you know, this, this could be what we're starting to see already is a few examples of miners. Um, so there was a, a talk at uh, the Coinbase conference in London where someone was discussing that there was a wind farm in, um, I think it was in the US, uh, the wind farm was about to shut down, and a Bitcoin miner came in and said, look, all the way, as much energy as you can give me um, at this price, um, and they were able to keep that wind farm open. So that's where you can start to see where that's going to go. And, uh, for the last, I think, four or five years running, the cheapest energy projects in the world have all been solar energy. Um, and so as these miners compete to find cheaper and cheaper sources of energy, they're going to incentivize a huge build out of energy infrastructure. Um, and it's mostly going to be, I think, renewables, uh, and solar wind, and, and possibly new new types of energy. So um, I'm starting to see more coming out about uh, thorium reactors and molten salt, uh, nuclear power. That's very interesting. Um, I, I would love to to see my team in that direction. Um, so what are nodes? So. Nodes are computers that are attached to the Bitcoin network for the purpose of mining. Um, now, by enough hash power to mine 10% of all Bitcoin blocks, we currently cost about half a billion dollars in equipment. And so when I say Bitcoin, I'm saying BTC plus BCH plus BSC. Um, and maybe these prices are a bit out of whack because they were, uh, this presentation is about four months old. Um, but uh, it's about $30,000 an hour to operate that hardware. And I don't think that price has changed too much because it's based on the price of energy. Um, Hashing uses that energy um, to prove that miners work on the block. So they have to burn that energy. Um, they have to solve that puzzle a billion times to find a suitable result. Um, and the reward for that is those newly minted bitcoins. So I'd like to say that forged out of energy, Bitcoins are what we're trying to cash. So we use electricity to create cash. And that's a really, I think that's such a powerful concept. And it's right there in the title of the white paper. Um, you know, mining is how this is created. So Bitcoin can be a global electronic cash system. On-chain scaling is the only way to pay for them. Um, you know, we have a lot of arguments about small numbers of high fee transactions. That's never going to happen. What you need is a stable, very, very large number of extremely cheap transactions, massive adoption. And that means that access will always be cheap. So if mining is a $350 billion industry, means that the network costs about $35 per person per year, um, or about 10 cents a day. Per person. However, what you can see is that the lion's share of that $350 billion is going to be being paid by large users such as financial services, companies like Amazon, 
Um, in most cases, when you are uh, using uh, Bitcoin as cash, um, you know, there are already systems coming out uh, that we spoke about last year where uh, there will be an API that will allow a uh, merchant to pay your fee on behalf, on your behalf. So when you form a transaction, a merchant will be able to say, well, I actually want to pay that 10% fee um, for you because I don't want you to cheap out and pay much less of fee that might take much longer for my transaction to be mine. So I've spoken to this miner, and I know that they will mine my transaction if I pay this amount. Um, so I'm going to actually give you that 10%. Um, and you're going to use that in our transaction. Um, and so you, as a benefit user, will probably have almost no cost associated with using Bitcoin, unless you are using it to upload data and files and kinds of you know, whatever else it's being used for. And you know, already we're starting to see services that provide for just that. You can upload a 300 megabyte file into Bitcoin today. So. Um, the Bitcoin network is scaling right now. So the maximum block size was set to 128 megabytes in November. We have yet to see a demonstration of that on LiveNet, however, um, it has definitely 100% been demonstrated on the scale of the testnet. Um, we are also we have also re-enabled um, I think almost all of the original opcodes, and the focus is on removing craft from um, the, the, the process of collecting and uh, transactions and building blocks and focusing on speed, focusing on scale. So actually this shouldn't say next year, it should say this year. Um, we're going to go to 512 megabytes in May, 2 gigabytes in November. Um, I'm actually hearing that we may even be a little bit faster than that. Um, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Um, but then basically from May 2020, um, it'll be uncapped. And so the goal of the miners will be to capture and mine as many transactions and as much information embedded in those transactions as people want to push onto the network. Um, and so basically from that point on, it will be very much a case of keep up or get out. Um, you know, if, uh, if the majority of the mining network is happy to mine terabyte blocks, Somebody mines a terabyte block and you cannot accept the terabyte block because your infrastructure is not up to snuff, uh, basically you're going to get pushed off the network. Um, and so that's, you know, mining is an extremely competitive industry. Um, we're going to see that coming out, you know, come becoming more and more evident as we move forward. Um, and just for some perspective, um, just one company like Amazon would need more space. Um, than, and more transactions than you can fit into a 32 megabyte network. So 32 megabytes is currently the limit on the Bitcoin Cash network. It was the network on the Bitcoin network. Uh, it was the limit on the Bitcoin network until November of last year. We now have 128 megabytes. Um, we need to shoot for the stars. You know, we, need, we need to get to a point where those rewards are um, very much outpacing the, or the fees, I should say, are outpacing the reward. So you say they're just going to go down and down? Fees. The payments to the miners? No, they're going to go up. Uh, so, all the, so in each block, there is what is called a mining reward or a mining subsidy. And so that was basically Satoshi's way of, of doing two things. Firstly, subsidizing the build of the network by giving miners fresh new points and basically inflating the supply of Bitcoins. Sure. 
Okay. Um, uh, and, and actually creating all the bitcoins. So that is the mechanism by which all the bitcoins on the network today were originally created, was as a reward to miners for being successful with finding blocks. Um, now, because of the, the eventual cap of 21 million, we have those hardness. So those subsidies drop by half. So what we need to see is that the fees being collected by the network go up to replace that subsidy. And there will be the need for the, uh, the need for less miners too, right? Uh, well, it's not really, the, it's not going to be whether we need less miners or whatever. It's going to be how many miners um, does that amount of money incentivize to join the network and build the infrastructure that's near. And, and so currently you have a lot of people who are like, oh, I've got my node, um, and it runs in my house, um, but they're not actually doing anything to build a network. So they are literally just um, spending their own money, uh, they're using their own bandwidth, but what are they actually providing to the network? If they disagree about a particular block, they have no power to do anything because they have no hash, they can't actually influence the direction of the network. And unless you are a hash wielding miner, um, you basically have no say. So, um, you know, I always say to people, if you have a node at home and it's not making you money, just turn it off because it's, it's actually um, it's, it's costing you money, it's not actually giving any benefit to the network. Um, so, yeah, that's basically it. Okay. So, Longer term, as, as Bitcoin is used more and more, um, I think you maybe arrived after I was discussing you know, what, what scale does for um, the amount of uh, revenue generated by the mining industry. Um, as that revenue kind of continually expands, um, that's going to uh, drive a lot of competition. And I think while there at, at, at any kind of price to reward ratio, there will be a, an upper limit on the number of miners that can um, affordably join the network, but as the value of, of the network goes up, and as more economic activity happens, um, that upper limit actually increases all the time. And, and so there's actually a bit of a function that happens there where you have like a natural culling of the miners who, who aren't doing so well, and a replacement of those miners with new miners. So as miners come into the network, who may have found a cheaper energy source and can um, you know, have a lower cost hash, or they've found a more efficient way of, of communicating uh, with the rest of the network, and again, one or two percent cost advantage over these guys, um, well, they may even decide at that point, this new miner might decide, well, I'm not even going to connect to those guys, because I can see that they're actually going to fall off the network. And it cost me this amount of money, you know, they're already mining less and less blocks. So I'm just going to leave them. Um, and if they, if they bring, bring back their game, then maybe I'll connect to them. But I'm only going to connect to the top of the mining network. And, uh, top meaning. Top meaning the, the, the nodes who uh, demonstrate they're finding the most blocks. And so this is one of the things that Enchain um, has been working on uh, there's a technology called Miner ID. Uh, which is basically will give miners the ability to insert into the Coinbase transaction um, and identify it. That uh, doesn't necessarily identify who they are um, as a miner or, or anything about them, 
But you have to go back through the blockchain and see, well, this block and this block and this block and this block were all mine at the same node. And so I can see that that node controls 5% of the hash power because they mine 5% of the blocks. So I'm definitely going to connect to that node directly because they're a very powerful node. Sure. And so that's also good for wallets. Um, you know, one of the things that we, we hear about a lot is, is double spending um, problems. And um, you know, some people say, oh, well, you can um, put a little civil node on the network, sees a transaction, and sends another transaction, and does this kind of stuff. If your wallet can directly connect to 99% of the hash power because it can identify the nodes by looking at the last 100 or so blocks and seeing what their um, IP addresses are. Well, then you're very safe from dark screen. So you, know, you basically, as soon as that transaction reaches 99% of the hash power, it's, it's golden. It's never going to be dark screen. Um, because if the 1% hash power did submit a block onto the network, that double spend that transaction, that 99% of the rest of the network has already seen, they're going to reject it. They're going to say, that's actually a double spend. We have, we the 99% have the double transaction. You're trying to defraud somebody. Uh, you lose your coins. Oh, yeah. So for that miner who's participating in that double spend attack and trying to defraud somebody, that becomes a very expensive exercise. And so this is where we, we see that the incentive is there to be honest. Um, in, I have yet to see someone define a realistic scenario where dishonesty actually brings financial benefit to a miner or a user. Just get it they, they always lose financially. And so it's by playing on that green um, and to keep them honest that we get the build of the network. We get, we get this reliability and um, you know this is very strong and robust financial system. And do they lose their coins by not being accepted? Yeah, so if they, if they found a block. So that means that they've done the proof of work, they've spent the $30,000 that we have to spend to do the proof of work, to find a solution to the hash puzzle, and using a block template that has a fraudulent transaction in it, and they send that to everybody else, as soon as everybody else sees the fraudulent transaction, they're just going to say, no, this block is in double um, during the double spending. And, and not only will they lose those bitcoins, they lose their credibility. And so miners actually keep checks on each other, they ban each other. So if you are a node and you just all of a sudden start spamming out lots of um, low fee transactions and whatever it is, and there's a bunch of different stuff that I've had before. Um, you know, if you were submitting blocks that had fraudulent transactions in them, basically that's going to cause all of the other miners on the network to stop talking to you. And that ID just by an IP address. I don't know precisely how it works, um, but I'm assuming that IP address something to do with, could do with it because um, you need to have means of contacting the miner. Um, and and that, because that is embedded into the block, that information is made available to anyone. So anybody who is using the network. So that can be you know, the, the slide of paper, we have the layers of the network, we have miners, we have commerce, we have custodian, we have users like you and me. That means that everybody can see who that node is and that anybody can reach out to that node and ask for information 
And if that's a, a 5% mine, um, you, know, you can be pretty certain that the information you get from them is going to be honest. But that's not the entire point of that. So the entire point of that is to. Yeah, the, the point of it is that you will very, very easily be able to get a collection of, say, 20 or 30 miners um, who represent collectively you know, 80, 90% of the hash power in the network and check whatever it is you're trying to check with, with them. And so um, if you are a merchant and you're checking that this person is not double-spending you, and you pay their fee and you send their transaction on their behalf. Now that doesn't mean that you're signing for them or anything, so their wallet signs the transaction and they pull out their phone and they sign it. They give it to you. You send it onto the network. You send it to those to that 80% of the network. And if that 80% of the network responds to you and says, this isn't a double spend, it's a valid transaction, you can let them leave. And basically, you don't need to wait for that transaction to get into a block. How did you actually do a dump? Once it's really like, um, how does that happen? Like, I mean, so, I would have a clue about it. Basically, the idea is that, um, so if anyone didn't hear the question, how is it double spend done? Um, the, the idea of it is that at two points um, simultaneously, or, or nearly simultaneously, at two geographically distinct locations, you introduce transactions onto the network that spend the same amount. So if you remember when we were talking before, um, you know, when you spend it, uh, all your money is held in coins, so unspent transaction numbers. You basically create two separate transactions that each spend the same coin, and you send one onto the network over there, and you send one onto the network over here. And so the idea of double spend is that you walk into your merchant and you buy your coffee or whatever it is, and just before you make your transaction with the merchant, you introduce double spend um, on the other side of the world. Then you give the merchant the coffee transaction, and they send it onto the network, and, and at the moment, the, the system that they have to check. Um, so they will send that out onto the network, and they will straight away get a response from the network to say, yep, transaction received, and that's like zero basically. And then the idea is that um, the, tra the other transaction that you've sent gets to more of the network than the one that you gave to the merchant. And so that whatever the percentage is uh, that it gets to, so say the, uh, the fraudulent transaction gets to 80% of the network, and the merchant's transaction only gets to 20% of the network, that means they have an 80% chance of the other transaction being accepted into a block. So that's how one gets paid. One of them gets paid by balance. Yeah. So there's still a 20% chance because the merchant still gets the money. Um, and in fact, if, if you mess up the timing and uh, the merchant gets the transaction paid to the network first, um, really the 20% transaction has very little hope of ever making money. And if they receive your confirmation, well, so this is money yet, this is for transactions where you're not off, where you're not waiting for the network to confirm. So you're not waiting for 10 minutes. So you're going in, you're buying like a coffee and a biscuit and paying that transaction and then leaving with the goods before, so you don't have to wait for 10 minutes. So what Minor ID is going to allow for is for that merchant to check with an overwhelming majority of the hash power the validity, the validity of that transaction. And so basically, under that scenario, 
um, you have almost zero chance of being double stacked. Infinitesimal. Far, far, far less than credit cards. And in fact, people make a huge deal out of double spending, um, but as far as I'm aware, there has never yet been um, a single legitimate instance of a double spend happening in the commercial environment. So there has never been fraud performed by double spending on any cryptocurrency network. So not just Bitcoin, but any network. So you're saying, I'm, like, I go to my Super Bowl, spend 30 bucks, and yeah. all that confirmation's come through, I go up to Hot Dogs, and spend 30 bucks there, and one of them's going to bounce. No, so if you if you go to Super Bowl and you buy a bottle of chicken and you eat the chicken and you go to the hot dog and buy a hot dog and you're using the same wallet, yeah. your wallet's just going to spend different points. Okay. Yeah. So it's going to look in it's going to look in what money it has. So if you go and buy a bottle of Super Bowl and that costs five dollars, so it's going to take a ten dollar coin and pay five dollars for Super Bowl and five dollars back to you. You then go up to the hot dog. And your hot dog costs three dollars. It may even take the same five dollar coin because it doesn't have to wait for confirmation. It can take a five dollar coin and pay back to itself and use that to buy a hot dog. And so you can actually spend the same money. So this is this is how much confidence miners have in the network: is that you can take one coin and spend it and get the change and spend the change and get the change and spend the change and get the change back. And you can do that twenty five times on the network um, before they'll stop you. And that's currently the limit, but um, I've heard on pretty good authority that that 25 is going to go up to 1,000. So basically what that is is miners are saying, um, we are so confident um, that you're not going to double spend and that, or that if you do double spend, we're going to be able to detect it in a way that is sufficiently safe for merchants to operate in an instant transactional environment um, but we're going to let you spend it a thousand times before it's completed. Most nice wallets will never get customers. That's uh, yeah, mostly yeah. Well, so here's the other thing with Bitcoin, right? Because every single transaction is written onto the ledger. If you defraud a merchant, there is an immutable record on the ledger that you did that fraud. Hey, hey, some customer. And so this is where, uh, like, you know, the law is going to get involved. And if you successfully hold off the double spend, um, you know, that's that's fraud. Yeah. And, and, and not only is that fraud, it's fraud where there's an immutable transaction with your signature on it that shows that you had intent to perform that fraud. So it's going to be very easy for people to be caught um, in doing this. And so there's very little incentive, not just for miners, but for users. To act in a dishonest way as well. So, um, yeah. Any other questions from the audience before I go to the uh, internet? Alright. see what we've got. Um, Alright, internet watchers, do we have any questions? Uh, um, a lot of chat in the troll box. Let's see if we got 
What are you just going to say? Looks like a few people are going to start sending through some questions, so I'll just give that 10 seconds of time. Yeah. How much of the, like initially, the network activity will be financial transactions? How much will be other information that wants to be put on the chain to be immutable? Um, so at the moment, um, on, on Bitcoin SD, the majority of, um, of the, the actual data that's being mined into the blocks is, at the moment, um, people have some fun, like people sending photographs, people uh, posting blog posts and, and things onto websites that are stored onto the blockchain. So uh, we've already seen the first instances of stores where people can go and buy, you know, merchandise and things like that, uh, or, or buy content, where the actual entire website, including the payment gateway and, and everything else, is completely um, housed on the blockchain. And um, so that's, a, that's most of what's happening at the moment. But as we start to see things like Tokenize um, and, and some of the other projects that are in the works, um, that are going to allow the processing of electronic data interchange. So um, EDI is, is a very big industry, um, which is basically uh, a, a formatting uh, for receipts and for the transfer of goods and money. And so all shipping documents and things like that are processed in, it's called UBICAR, so Universal Business Language. And they take, um, they, using Universal Business Language, they can build um, receipts from templates. And so if you want to trade with most of the big companies like Walmart and Apples and things like that in the world, you have to provide with any goods that they purchase from you receipts in this um, EDI format using UDI. And what's actually been shown is that it's extremely easy to port that onto Bitcoin and to provide them a way for those records to be stored immutably on the blockchain as UDL transactions. Um, okay, so, well, as UDL records. Um, and so I think that that's actually a huge industry. There's enough in that for gigabytes of data and 10 minutes. And so once I think there's a reliable solution that can be simply integrated into the back-end systems for management, shipment, and things like that, um, I would expect to see some probably smaller players jumping on board first. Um, and then a short time after it's proven, we'll start to see much bigger players come in and, and, and using that and demanding that that be the record. So because as soon as you do that, if you are a, a company that's you know, doing uh, 100 million transactions a year um, and storing all those receipts as EDI, um, currently you have to have infrastructure to manage that. So you have to have your own storage, your own servers, um, all this kind of stuff. Well, now imagine that all you need in any place where you're managing shipment is an open internet port with access to Bitcoin. And anytime something comes in, you just squirt the transaction onto the network and it's done. So you just cut a whole layer of craft out of your business. And so it, it allows, there's these huge opportunities to make things much more efficient in terms of um, infrastructure and so replacing. Um, what we currently replicate um, for each individual business with a much larger, much broader, uh, applicable database for everybody, for public 
Um, so I think to answer your question, because that was really far around about, I think initially we're seeing people just using it as, you know, sending five cents here, dollar there, um, and storing photographs. And, but as soon as we see some valid apps and valid environments that businesses can integrate with their workflow, um, that's going to overtake all that stuff really fast. Yeah, so, so growth won't come from, from users wanting to exchange, uh, uh, wanting to use Bitcoin's cash? Um, it will eventually, um, I, but for that to happen, you need also like commercial support. Um, currently, Bitcoin SD doesn't have that. Um, there's a lot of points that have a lot of commercial support with Bitcoin SD. So I think. Um, but you must admit there's not a great deal of volume on the, on the other coins in that regard either. No, there's not. Um, and I think. No, they could have been, um, but if the waters weren't so muddy, if we didn't have this kind of multi-crypto universe, or if you want to be a crypto accepting merchant, you've got to have a portal that allows you to accept 20 or 30 different coins or whatever it is. I think if there was just one Bitcoin and it scaled and everybody was able to use it, I think you would be able to use it just about everywhere right now, but um, because it's become so um, convoluted. To, for anybody to accept cryptocurrency, um, yeah, that's it's unfortunate. Um, but I think that's going to come back eventually. Um, and I think what you'll also see is um, a much greater use of the Bitcoin network to tokenize Bitcoins. So for for you to be able to go in and have like a card that the might even say these are on the front, and you to swipe that card um, or tap that card, and there it is. Um, but for that transaction to be conducted on the Bitcoin network and have the same properties as a Bitcoin transaction, so extremely difficult for it to be double spent, um, instant, so for the merchants to have instant access to that money, so there's no third party, there's no accumulators, there's no banks involved in that transaction, so basically when I tap that card, it goes straight to the merchant and they can spend that money straight away. Maybe as part of that transaction, it takes the GST instantaneously, um, you know, there's all this kind of stuff that you can do. And so there's these efficiencies at kind of every layer that you can achieve by migrating services to Bitcoin. So it doesn't, it's not just the cash aspect, although that's very important, but it's, it's building on top of money and, and making, using that money to, um, to move things more efficiently. So, yeah. All right. Sorry, everybody. I've been... Uh, da, 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 da. How do I feel about one year from now? I feel very optimistic about one year from now. I think um, things are going to be very different. And I'm actually just going to sit down so that I don't have to bend over. Um, okay. Estimation for scale to allow YouTube on BSV, two gigabyte blocks, 10 gigabyte blocks. Um, way, way, way more than that. <laughs> I think YouTube processes about, I think it's like, like 20 hours of content every second or every minute. So it's whatever of YouTube video is per second times like a thousand times 10 minutes. So I think you're not going to see that until we get to, you know, hundreds of petabyte blocks. Um, and I don't think that that's, that's maybe, maybe in 30 years. Something like that. But what you are going to see is services that are YouTube like 
And I would love it if it was YouTube, because you know, they can kind of take it to the next level, but I would say they probably won't be able to get overtaken by somebody else. There will be services that are YouTube-like, which store the videos off-chain, but which then provide them to you um, for payment of, you know, for micropayments. So that could be ad-supported micropayments, where you like click on an ad and you get paid two cents to view the ad, and then you pay that two cents to provide a real video, um, something like that. And there's, there's heaps of different models. Um, and so this is part of the MetaNet, um, which I'm going to talk about next month, um, which allows for the encapsulation of Bitcoin transactions into the header of IPv6 packets. And so what you're going to be able to do is have IPv6 packets sent that contain content being delivered across the Bitcoin network uh, where the transaction that pays for that content is embedded in the header. Um, and so that's, um, I think, one of the most interesting um, aspects of the metadata. And so what it's going to allow for is, is, is a service like YouTube where the videos themselves are not hosted on the blockchain, but where the delivery of that content relies on Bitcoin um, and is, is handled through transactions on the Bitcoin network. Um, so, is Calvin Air building power plants? I have no idea you would have to ask Calvin Air. Um, given the recent US ruling that any blockchain node that sends a block containing illegal content can be prosecuted, what is your strategy to address this issue? Um, uh, personally, I don't have a strategy. Um, I have read that... Uh, Nodes holding illegal content uh, will only be prosecuted if they serve that content to uh, someone trying to view that content. So they are protected by common carrier laws, which is similar to uh, an ISP. So basically, it means uh, that if you send illegal content or a link provided to you by your internet service provider, they can't be prosecuted on the basis of the material that you are sending over their network. And so Bitcoin and miners uh, are the same. Now, if you have a Bitcoin node and you are not a miner, that changes the outcome for you because, because you are not hosting that data as part of an operation that is providing the core Bitcoin service. So because you are not actively mining, um, that changes uh, the, the part of the law that applies to you. Um, and so you may be uh, potentially liable because I'm, I'm not a lawyer and I don't uh, fully know the whole uh, status of that yet, but I've heard that that is um, part of what's going to happen, part of uh, how that's going to be handled. So as a miner, as an active cash wielding miner, finding blocks on the network, you're not liable for what people use the network for. But if someone posting a copy of the blockchain is not mine, um, you are liable. And so you would be responsible for uh, pruning any um, uh, transactions that were considered illegal from your node and um, basically preventing anybody from accessing that information. So I hope that answers your question, Herman. Oh, and that's the other thing. When you do put illegal content onto the blockchain, you do that with a transaction that you sign digitally. And so there is an immutable record of the fact 
and you uploaded that content onto the blockchain. So um, don't think that the FBI is not going to care about that. They're going to, uh, you know, there's that immutable record. Um, the most of the services that um, are being used at the moment to upload that content uh, are working with law enforcement. Um, so, you know, tread with care. Um, so, what is the chain of signatures debate all about? Uh, so, this is this is this is a good one. So, this um, I'm, I'm sure most of you are um, familiar with the SegWit, um, which is the technology that is um, introduced on the VTC network um, and also on Litecoin and a bunch of other coins. So, what segregated witness does is so when you uh, create a transaction to send onto the Bitcoin network, basically what you do is you select the coins that you are going to spend, um, you build a transaction around them, so you say, so say you want to send um, you know, $10 to somebody, um, you get a coin that's worth $15 out of your wallet, and you construct a transaction that sends $10 to that person, $5 back to you, and 10% to the miners. Um, what you then have to do is sign that entitlement. And so by signing, uh, what you actually do is you take your private key and construct a signature. And so the process to do that is actually um, not uh, trivial. So basically you have to take that whole transaction that you've constructed, um, hash it together into a single piece of data, and then using elliptic curve maths basically create a, a hash Structure, which is a signature, and I'm not going to have that because I don't 100% understand myself yet. Um, but basically, that signature is something that is um, extremely simple to verify um, that it was created by the same private key that is the parent of the public key that is related to the coin being spent. Um, so it's extremely easy to check that that private key created the signature, um, uh, but it's impossible to go from that signature back to the private key. So what Segregated Witness does, so in a Bitcoin transaction on the Bitcoin SP network, that signature is part of the transaction data. So when you send a transaction onto the network, it might be 250 bytes. 70 bytes of that is that signature. Now in Segregated Witness, what they actually do is take that 70 byte signature out of the transaction to make the transaction itself 70 bytes small, so it goes down to say 180 bytes, and they take the signature and they take all of the signatures from the whole block and they put them into the Coinbase transaction. And so all of the segment transactions that are in the block have their signatures removed and have them placed into the Coinbase transaction as part of um, part of the data carrier element that's in there. Um, now the issue with that is that um, those coins, those unspent transaction outputs, no longer have that signature used to spend the coins attached to them. Um, for you, for a miner to check, they have to go to that unspent transaction output, then to the block header, um, uh, sorry, then to the Coinbase transaction from the block in which that output was mined um, and check that signature. 
And but really, really, what happens is when those transactions are created, um, they're created as what's called anyone can spend. So the reality is the money doesn't really need to check. Um, it just breaks the entire model of Bitcoin. It really changes Bitcoin from uh, a chain of digital signatures to a bunch of uh, coins without signatures in a memory bank um, that can be spent by anyone, but which miners prevent anyone from spending because they have a record of the signatures sorted elsewhere. Um, so to me, it's really quite a, a very, very significant change to Bitcoin, and if the price of preventing that from getting onto the Bitcoin network was to fork um, and leave um, the, the, the BTC core network um, to do that themselves, then um, it, was, it was a price that I'm unhappy about because um, it, it really destroys uh, the cash, it destroys the fungibility of Bitcoin. So because now you actually have two different kinds of Bitcoin on the BTC network. You have uh, non-segwit bitcoins and segwit bitcoins. So you have coins that still have intact that chain of digital signatures, and you have coins that have now lost that chain. And once you spend a coin into a segwit address, you can never spend it back into a normal bitcoin address. It must remain segwit forever. And so as more and more of the network becomes segwit coins, we're actually going to end up in a situation where they're just going to consume all the rest of the coins because um, as uh, each coin is spent, even if you have to mix one single coin into the transaction, um, all the outputs of that transaction have to be then segregated coins. Okay. Um, what's the next question? Brendan, will you go on the Joe Rogan show? Hey, if he invites me, hell yeah, I love Joe Rogan. Um, all right, do we have any more questions uh, from the internet or from the audience? Because um, that's, that's almost an hour and a half that we've been live. I'll give it another, another four minutes until 7.30, and then um, my call will call end. So. If you have any further questions, someone just saying they see CSW as a strategist and a, a tactician. I would say that's reasonably accurate. There's a lot of um, Sun Tzu in, in what he does. What's that? The award he won recently in the CBS. Yes, yes, yes. What is that organization? International? It's, I think it's something to do with the university in the UK uh, where he submitted a paper on decentralized autonomous organizations um, and how they operate. And so he, he submitted a paper that basically outlines how a decentralized autonomous organization could be created and then governed using the Bitcoin network. And um, yeah, he won the best paper. So, uh, that's an internationally recognized. I believe so. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. If, I think it's just basically that society in the war. But it's, I think it's a reasonably significant society. But I don't know a whole lot about myself. But um, you know, it's um, it's very interesting to see him winning awards in these kind of fairly diverse um, 
arenas. You know, so that, that was like a you know, boring technology type um, conference uh, that, that gave him that. So, yeah, good on you. If you're watching, Craig, yeah. congratulations. Okay. Um, is there an Amazon type thing I can build on that you worked on? As far as I'm aware, no. So jump out there and build it. You know, Bitcoin is as capitalist as it gets, so if you're first and you're the best, you're going to win. So get running. Will travel by bit find themselves in trouble pushing lightning? Ah, well, that's pretty interesting, actually. Um, it looks like there's um, some legal aspects of running a lightning node uh, that turn you into something of a money handler. And so it will be down to whether the travel by this partner, um, which I think is the Lunar Institution who created the, uh, what was their wallet called? The Wallet of Satoshi. Wallet of Satoshi. Um, whether their channels, um, whether they uh, have the proper registration and um, controls that they need to um, you know, be registered as a money handler. So I don't know how the Australian uh, law is going to handle it. Um, so, yeah, look, uh, I think um, that's basically it. Thanks everybody for uh, checking in and, and uh, watching on the live stream. Um, it's been, been a great, great evening, and thanks for everyone who came tonight. Um, Thank you. Uh, and uh, I'll see you all next time. And, and. Mate, on the 21st, it's going to be 